Well, my name is Dean Annan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Village Church, and I'll be wrapping up our series today, the series that's entitled Jesus in an Insidious World. And we'll be in the book of John, chapter 1 again, verses 14 through 17, so you can open there or turn on your device, however you do it. So far in this series, we've seen that Jesus and only Jesus brings truth, life, and light to a world that's full of confusion, death, and darkness. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus versus the intolerance. Jesus brings grace and truth to a world that puts up walls, that likes to keep people at a distance, a world of intolerance. Speaking of keeping people at a distance, do you remember the lunch table? I mean, for me, I think of high school. If you know what I'm talking about, either in, in uh, maybe public, private school, your lunch table. I, I, I think about that sometimes, maybe more than I should. And for some of you, it evokes all kinds of emotions, maybe some memories, maybe not all are good. Uh, I know in my uh, case, uh, my, my tribe, my posse, my friends, my group, were usually different sports teams, either it was football or it was hockey or it was baseball, and these were my friends, those were my experiences. But one thing was, this might be a slight overstatement, but one thing was kind of the unwritten rule that just wasn't said. If you were to change tables, you'd be changing your tribe. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that was my experience. But then there was this guy, Matt Green, now, Matt Green is one of these guys that they should make a movie on because he was a starting running back of our football team. He was well-liked by everyone. I could name all the cliques, but I'm not going to name them right now. I'll save you from that. And all the girls, of course, thought he was a hunk. And if you don't know what that means, then turn to somebody about my age or older. They'll explain what that means. So Matt blurred the lines tremendously of the unwritten rules of the lunch table. And, and, so, and I would watch him. And he would go sit with people, not just at the football table. He'd go sit with other people that weren't like us. He blew away those rules, made an impact on me. Well, it's funny how you can get into adulthood and you think about these things, that cliques, tribes, whatever you want to call them, and maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're about to be a teenager. Maybe you're in high school right now and you know what I'm talking about. But as adults... We've all matured past all that, right? Haven't we? That's tongue-in-cheek. That's sarcasm, in case you didn't know where I was going with that. I'm not saying that all group associations are bad, by no means at all. I'm not saying that, but they can become idols. And they can be the cause sometimes of our lack of spreading the gospel, of reaching out. You see, lunch tables were meant to pull people together, not to push us apart. So there's... a a few definitions, but I have one definition of tribe. I just, I'll be referring to it a few times. And this basic definition of tribe is simply this, at least in my mind, is this shared identity of values and behavior. So when I use that, that's what I mean. Now, everybody wants to identify, right, with something, with, with a group. Of course, it's not always bad, right? Village church, we think of us as a, as a group, right? How about your Bible study or how about um, your ethnicity, uh, for me, uh, I'm a cheesehead, and so if you have never heard of what that is, then maybe you're not from the Midwest area. That just means you're someone from Wisconsin, because as everybody knows, it, you know, Wisconsin produces, of course, the greatest cheese in all the world, as we're all taught in elementary school in Wisconsin. It's just one of the truths I was taught. Well, what are your tribes? Do you have tribes? Can you even think about them? Identify them? Are they, are they limiting 
or are they enhancing your interactions with other people? Are they limiting or enhancing? You know, Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, our idols, and honestly, to bring us and others into his family. And I think that if Jesus were here today in the lunchroom, I think he'd be jumping tables like Matt Green did, or maybe better yet, be inviting people to his lunch table for everyone. And I think if he didn't see his followers following suit, I think he'd flip over the lunch tables because he's pretty good at flipping over tables. <laughs> but what he'd do is he'd teach his followers yet again and once again what it means to be grace and truth. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I'll read that now. So I'm starting in verse 14, and it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. This is the apostle John talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I've said, as he's talking about Jesus, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 16, for from his fullness, Jesus's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Our big idea today is this, that grace and truth win souls to the kingdom of God. So if being a disciple means anything, as we come to faith in Christ and as he pulls us into all grace and truth and into his family, it also means that after our salvation, we listen to him, we follow him, and we do like he does. So, when we look at our three points today, then, we'll first we'll be focusing on our passage of the incarnation of Jesus, who is all grace and truth. Then we're going to see examples of grace and truth. And then finally, some pitfalls that can hold us back from extending grace and truth to a world filled with intolerance. So our first point, let's look at verse 14. Right away it says, just these first few words, and the word became flesh. Now, if you go back to verse 1, if you have your Bibles, if you just look back at verse 1, I won't have it on the screen, but at the end of verse 1, it said this. It said, the Word was God. And now we know from our series and earlier, if you've been around in the Bible for a while, you know that the Word, Logos, is actually referring to Jesus Christ. So what's verse 1 saying? What's verse 14 saying? It's saying this, God became flesh. The Word became flesh. These four words that we see in verse 14 this is the most concise place in the Bible of defining the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Just four short words. And John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gets this word flesh. Now John could have used some other words, but God guided him to this word flesh. Why? Because flesh is very clear in the language. It was a real, physical human body. So, Jesus is all divine. Jesus is all body, he is all man, and we know that. And then we go on in this verse where there's some characterizations of the incarnation of Jesus. Certainly, he talks about his glory, 
which probably means his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his body, his new resurrected body. But, but what does John focus on? The apostle John, in these four verses, focuses on this characteristic. He characterizes the incarnation this way, grace and truth. Two times, verse 14, verse 17, grace and truth. Let me just look at grace for a minute because grace, if someone were to ask you, uh, who is your God? It'd be fair to say, my God is a God of grace, right? That's one of the most essential characteristics of our God is a God of grace. Grace here refers to, to graciousness, but it also refers back to this Old Testament idea of this covenanting, steadfast, loyal love, a love that just doesn't give up and keeps going. It's a one-way love, something we don't deserve. I have a definition here for grace. Grace is God's favor toward the unworthy. Isn't that wonderful? Do I deserve God's grace? Do I deserve his love? Do I deserve his forgiveness? No. It's a one-way love, God's favor towards the unworthy. But God, through Jesus Christ, gives us grace, and this is how we experience grace. So hear this. If you, um, without hesitation today, if you can say that you've received Jesus as your Savior, and he has forgiven your sins, his death, his resurrection. If that is where you are today, and you believe that like in John chapter 1, verse 12, a few verses earlier, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then you can truly say without hesitation that you have experienced the grace of God. You need to look no further. This grace is a gift and God has given it to you. But on the other hand, if today you're sitting here and you're not really sure where you are with God or, or Jesus, and you're not able to say, I've asked God for forgiveness of my sins, then friends, you can do that today because you haven't experienced real grace, this real unconditional love, which only comes from Jesus Christ until you've made that decision. Friends, without Christ, there's no real understanding of grace. Now, the, the truth here is also in this is passage, still in verse 14. Now, it means integrity here, but I had to look this up. I had to look this up because it means a little more in the sense in which John is using it in these verses. It means this, in a sense, conformity to reality or actuality. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means you don't get to have your version of truth and I don't get to have my version of truth, amen? That's not what we're talking about here. It's actual reality. John chapter 14, 6 says this, and if you've been in the Bible for a while or you're a Bible student, you might even have this one memorized. It says, I am the way. This is Jesus talking. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know truth, you look at Jesus, his life, what he has done, what he has taught, all of it, and his revelation through the holy word of God. We need to look no, no further, church. That's where truth is. Remember, he didn't say, I'm a way, right? He said, I'm the way. That's the reality. So our first point, again, is no. We need to know grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to run through some more things in verse 14 through 17. Um, but before I get there, 
I like to think of the Old Testament as God is opening up the window to knowing God. He does that through, well, certainly in the creation, but in Abraham and Moses, and it keeps going through the prophets. It keeps going. And then this window is just not just opened all the way in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I think of, I think of God as taking a sledgehammer and just breaking the whole frame of the window, taking the thing off and just throwing it on your lawn. I don't know who's going to clean it up, but there it is. God has smashed the whole window out in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And for us to say we can love God, I want to link these two things. That We have to know God. To love God, we must know God. Many years ago, I was at a retreat, a men's retreat, and after the retreat, I was with a speaker and a few other men, and we were, the guys who were with me at that time were, were a bunch of married men, and he... Um, he was a, a, a former uh, Vietnam Army Green Beret turned pastor guy, so uh, yeah, we were listening to him. <laughs> he, he looked at us with his big hands, and he pointed at each one of us, and I, I won't forget this. He said, you need to get a PhD in your wife. <laughs> you hear that? You need to get a PhD in your wife. We're like, what? What he explained to us was that if you're to love your wife, you need to study her. You need to know her, to love her. This is not just about husband to wife. This is any relationships. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. If you're in high school today, Jesus has called you to love the people there. And to love them, you need to know them. Know, ask questions, study, and love. This is what we do. So if we say, church, if we say that we love God without knowing what the Bible teaches Deeply, And don't we want to know God more so we can love him more and go deep and deep? If we don't do that, what we're doing is we're creating an idol to worship. I know that sounds a little harsh, but I've seen that. I've seen that and others do that, and I pray I won't do that. But if we're not studying the word of God and, and understanding who God is, then what are we worshiping? Is it a, is it a desire of a version of God that I want God to be? Is it something other than God? Because if it is then we're worshiping nothing more than an idol. So let's listen to what God says in his holy word, in his revelation to us, the truth. Yes, in the incarnation and through his holy word, the Bible. All right, verse 14. Let's dig on a few more words here. Verse 14, I love this word. It says, talking about Jesus, dwelt. That's a big word, dwelt among us. But some of your translations in your Bibles might say made his dwelling among us. Either way, that word was a big word because the word there meant tabernacled, dwelt, Tabernacled. So to us, maybe that doesn't mean a lot, but to the readers then, some of them would have made this link. Now, this link is really big. This link meant that Jesus actually really did and was present with their ancestors, the Jewish ancestors, the Israelites, at what? At the tabernacle. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. If you're taking some notes, you can write Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 down. 40, 34 in Exodus. I'm just going to read it for you because it's talking here about God's glory. Now remember, glory is in our verse today, but also it's talking about God's glory here. And here's what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is also tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't that cool? This is actually Jesus, the Messiah, here at that time, or there at that time, meeting with his people in the Old Testament times. And now, here we have what we're reading today, God's glory, Jesus Christ, became resident as God's New Testament temple. God, who is 
always been with his people and loves his people. So in John chapter one, there was a little bit earlier about John the Baptist, as we heard in our series, and John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, right? And he's the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. And the apostle John is recording some words from John the Baptist. This is verse 15. And here's what the apostle John had said. And he's talking about Jesus. He who comes after me, that means Jesus, who comes after John the Baptist, ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, Jesus is superior to John the Baptist because he pre-existed with the Father. So John the Baptist is saying Jesus is God. Isn't that amazing? Not just God, he's fully God. In verse 16, as we keep going, we'll see it says, from his fullness, meaning Jesus' fullness, what does that mean? The fullness of God, we all have received grace upon grace. Received it, this one-way love for salvation, even like verse 12 we just mentioned a few moments ago. This grace upon grace. God gave grace in the Old Testament, and now we see grace in the New Testament, and there's nowhere else to look for it. Grace upon grace, we're gonna come back to that in a minute, but it means, here's what it means, grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace in place of grace. Like waves, like waves. You ever stand at a at an ocean and watch waves. I'm sure some of you have been to the ocean. Maybe many of you have had that experience. You stand there and these waves, they just keep coming in. Where'd they come from? You know, was it a storm? Was it some wind? But they come in and they're beautiful and sometimes they're just overwhelming. Well, Chris and I were um, at the ocean last year and we didn't know much about big shore breaks, if you know what I'm talking about. Shore breaks are these, are these big waves and they're really close to the shore, but they're very tall and very powerful and we knew little of it. And so here we are and we're there and we're walking out into the water and I'm a little bit beyond Chris and she's just behind me and a wave pushes her under. And so she's under what seems like about 15 minutes, but it was really probably about 15 seconds and she's down there and I don't, I don't see her. She tells me later what was happening to her is, she was being turned around like in a, a wash machine, a, a front-end loading wash machine. The, yeah, I know what a front-end loading wash machine is, and we have one in our basement somewhere. So it's down there. And while she's down there not knowing which way is up, you know, I'm, I'm out a little further from her, so I'm playing hockey goalie. I'm trying to save her from going out past me to the ocean, getting sucked out. I'm kick-saving, I'm glove-saving, I'm doing all these things. I still can't find her, but finally she gets her feet under her and she stands up. And she lost her new hat, this new white baseball hat. Looked really cute. She lost that, lost her hair tie. And hair and sand are everywhere. <laughs> but well, let's get back to what we're talking about. Grace. Grace, the truth of grace. Grace just keeps coming wave after wave after wave. And it's beautiful, right? Sometimes it's even overwhelming. Let's look at verse 17. Verse 17 is amazing. Verse 17, John, I think, is telling us that this new grace we have in Jesus Christ is the new fullness of grace, but it's also superior to that of the Old Testament law. I'll put it up there on the screen. But if you look at it, see, John is contrasting the law and grace, yet the law of Moses still contained grace. Verse 17 says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if you know about the Old Testament system of sacrifices, animal sacrifices to atone for people's sin, you might say to me, how did that old system give grace to people? 
And I would say, because the Israelites were a chosen people to know the one true loving God of the universe, they were privileged to know right from wrong. They were privileged into a holy relationship, uh, to a relationship as sinners with a holy God through this Old Testament grace, the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law gave grace. Yet, when you look at what the, or instead, uh, the Apostle Paul said this, because he knew this. He knew the Old Testament law wasn't bad. Here's what he said about it. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, yet it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And friends, for us to understand the grace of God and the truth of God, we need to be reminded of that sin. The Old Testament law is grace because it reminds us yet again, like the Apostle Paul said many times, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't know my need for a savior. Um, Ronald Eldon says this. He says this, talking about verse 17. The point of John 1:17 is not, well, then bad, now good. The point is rather this, then wonderful, and now better. The law of Moses wasn't bad, but the fullness of grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give a few examples here. We're going to go to our second point. Our first point was no grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Our second point is see grace and truth in action. So we see grace and truth in us the more we look to Jesus because three things I'm going to get through quickly here. One is the new identity we have in Christ. And I'll go through each of these. The new family we have in Christ, and that's the church. And third is the new example we have in Christ. The new identity we have in Christ. So um, the Apostle Paul gets at this. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is a new identity that you have. The old has passed away. The old has passed away in me. I have, some days I don't always feel like it, right? Do you feel like it every day? I don't feel like it every day necessarily. But it's true. It's true. Behold, the new has come, the apostle said. Let me define identity quickly. The identity says, identity, the word identity means this. The collective aspect of the set of characteristics. So identity has characteristics to it by which a thing is definitively recognizable. So your identity, there are characteristics you have which are recognizable by others. Grace and truth, for example. As followers of Jesus Christ, those and those, grace and truth, can be our identity and is and should be. You know, Village Church, it, isn't it great when others identify you as people of grace and truth? Isn't it great when, when they know you're the kind of person that listens, you're the kind of person that they can go to, you're the kind of person that doesn't seem to judge so fast like the rest of the world does, you're the kind of person that doesn't push people away, you're the kind of person that doesn't build up walls, that's you? Is that your identity? Do people see that in you? Others should always see Christ in us, and so we look to Christ. But it's not just a new identity in Christ that we see grace and truth, it's also this new family, the church. Now, there's a lot I could say about the church, but the church are, the church defined here is a, is a um, in the Bible it means an assembly. So certainly we're, we're a corporate body, we're together, we're not alone, but it also means called out ones. So we're called out to a mission. But what I really want to focus on is that the family, the new family we have, is not a closed family. It's constantly growing. 
people are coming to faith in Christ, being born again. We're certainly good at reproducing, and I mean it that way. So we have these new believers coming in, and we're growing the family of God. And all of that is true, and we're inviting at the same time, though. We're a church where we must reject false doctrine, false teaching, false ideologies, but we continue to invite people, all people, from all places, all different beliefs, all different values into this family to follow the one true Jesus Christ of grace and truth. Uh, do you remember any of these? The woman at the well in John chapter 4? How about the woman who was caught in adultery? John chapter 8. How about when Jesus washes the disciples' feet? Do you see grace and truth in this? Remember the woman at the well, right? She's from Samaria, a place where no good rabbi would certainly go. <laughs> talk about uh, racial hatred. <laughs> you have the Jews and the Samaritans, and we could talk for about a half an hour about what went on between them. But Jesus went to Samaria and talked to a woman who had a past that it's hard to even repeat from up here, and yet he gently talked to her, extended grace, and gave her himself the truth, and she believed. And the woman caught in adultery, a woman who by law should have been killed, he talked to her again with grace and gentleness, and yet told her the truth. That is to go sin no more. And the disciples, what about the disciples? Do you remember the disciples? So one betrayed him, uh, one denied him several times, uh, one, or the rest pretty much all ran away at the end. Jesus washed these men's feet. And he knew this was happening, grace and truth. So he hung out with people that it seems like he shouldn't have hung out with. He touched people that were unclean. He invited people to sin no more. This is what we see in Jesus Christ. And this is what we see in the family of God when we're running with Jesus, sharing truth with people. We share truth, though, with honey, don't we? Share it with honey and clarity, inviting people, forgiving people. Like Jesus, this is how we see that. And I see this. I see grace and truth in this congregation. I'm not saying it to puff you up. I'm saying it to encourage you. I can say now, I've been here long enough in this congregation to see grace and truth, and I'm so thankful for it. Keep it up. <laughs> we see grace and truth in Jesus' life, so we see it in our new identity in Christ, like I said, the new family we have, and the new example we have in Christ. And remember our big idea again? Our big idea was grace and truth win souls to the family of God. However, there are pitfalls. There are pitfalls that can stand in our way of doing this. And this is our third point, the pitfalls of tribes. There's other things we could talk about, lies and all these other things we could talk about. I want to talk about even our own tribes, how there can be pitfalls. So our world has intolerance, right? Is that an understatement? <laughs> I mean, cancel culture, political divisions, you name it. Some of us want to get, unfortunately, our ultimate identity in getting into these tribes or being part of these tribes. Sometimes we even uh, are seeking still our identity in these tribes, ultimately in the wrong places. Are you a masker, masker anti-masker? Are you a Democrat, Republican? Are you a homeschooler? What are you, public schooler, private schooler? I, are you waving that banner? What's on your front lawn? Are you wearing that hat? Are you um, wearing that T-shirt? These things, they can just go wrong. Before I go to Scripture, let me tell you my own tendency 
This is a moment of confession. I don't know if I do this necessarily um, um, out loud or I even really think these thoughts, but I can see this in my own heart sometimes. And here's what it is. When I know somebody's in that tribe over here, they don't think like I do. Um, They're just, they're different. I don't want to get to know them. Have you ever felt like that? I hope you don't. I don't want to get to know them because, because you know why? I figured it out. I've figured them out. They associate with that. I have figured them out. And frankly, it's just more comfortable and less challenging and less risky for me to stay in my own tribe. It can be so hard to bridge that divide. It's not just true today. In Jesus' day, there were 6,000 Pharisees roughly. And, you know, these, these Pharisees, they were many were simply trying to live a holy life and bring people to their holy God. Many were trying to do this. And, you know, they were occupied by the pagan Romans, right? It was a difficult, difficult situation they were in. And, but unfortunately, they had the Old Testament law, but on top of what they did to that, the Old Testament law was great, but what they did is they had all this legalism, all these rules. You've probably heard about some of them. And that kind of overtook their daily lives. They would wash their fingers, these Pharisees. They would measure out just the right amount of water carefully so that they could be ritually clean. And then on the Sabbath, oh, they wouldn't carry loads. And they'd have to measure the amount of paces they walked so they wouldn't be considered working. And they wouldn't cook, right, because that would be working. Jesus called them out on that and didn't like it. Some of these Pharisees, though, they were sincere. They wanted people to follow God, however... There always seems to be an however, right? Or a but, or instead. However, (laughs) some of these Pharisees were religious snobs. Some were prideful men. Some were always criticizing. They were control freaks. They became obsessed with following their legalism, and they lost track of the main thing. And what's the main thing? The main thing is grace to sinners. The religious leaders made following God very difficult. They put heavy, heavy, heavy burdens on the people of the day. And Jesus didn't like that. Matthew chapter 23, verses 4 through 5 says this. And this is Jesus talking about the Pharisees. He he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger They do all their deeds to be seen by others. In other words, they were just hypocrites, these religious snobs. So you see the problem, right? The problem here, this this pitfall, exclusivity. What was the job of the scribes and Pharisees? It was to bring people to God, sinners to repent and to know the love of God. Their simple job, not simple job, their job was that. But they were so exclusive, so intolerant. They had no grace to extend to people who were not like them. In our day, and in Jesus' day, our tribes can sometimes bring division. That's where this can go wrong. Do you feel tension? I hope you feel tension. I feel tension. I wrote tension. I felt tension this week writing this because it's, it's a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, we're called as Christians to be content, but we're not called to be comfortable And we know that the truth of God's word doesn't uh, shift, um, doesn't um, slip, slide, slither, right? It stays straight all the time. It never changes. But at the same, same time, we're to stay true to God's word. 
and make contact with other tribes, other people who are different than us. That can be uncomfortable. There's a tension there. I get that. But again, it's to extend God's grace to sinners like you and like me. That's it. And that is, there's tension there. Disciples of Christ live in tension of staying true to the word of God, but never letting that keep us from extending God's grace to others. Friends, I know that's hard. That's why we pray, and that's why we have the family of God to help us. So remember, we're addressing this third point, right? Pitfalls of tribes. Let me pile on a little bit now. I'm gonna talk about some things that are really insidious that can happen with tribes. Here they are. One of the lies is this. God didn't make that man, that woman, boy or girl, in his image. But what did God say? God said in Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness, male and female. He created them. See the temptation there? The temptation there is that not all people matter to God. Not all people. Now, we think this subconsciously maybe sometimes, but not all people are made in his image. That's insidious. Another lie can be, in our subconscious minds, we could be thinking, God didn't say we need to bring people or bring Jesus to those people. But what's the truth? Jesus said in the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The temptation is that God didn't die for those people, but that's insidious. So in a world that seldom extends grace or even cares about truth, let's just check our hearts today and ask God, is there something hidden? Because the antidote to this poison, to this indifference, intolerance, this insidiousness has always been and will always be the the rescuing, relational, redeeming work of Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else to go but to Jesus Christ. And remember that grace and truth win souls to the family of God. So, let's take a moment. I'm just gonna ask you, even if it's just for a moment, to just close your eyes. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? We've looked at Scripture. We've heard the sermon. But the Spirit of God, I trust, is moving. And so what? So what? Maybe, maybe God is saying there's a sin that you or I this morning need to confess. Or maybe there's people that, aren't there people that you want to pray for and people you're less apt to pray for? How about that? How about we pray for people we don't want to pray for? Try that. That changes our hearts. That's a heart of grace, a heart like God's. How about spend time with someone who needs a friend or, or asks God for an opportunity to be grace and truth to somebody who needs experience grace and truth children children students you know how about extending grace to your parents (laughs) the love of God to your parents sometimes it might feel like your parents are against you but they're not your parents love you they're your number one fan they're your number one cheerleader how about extending grace to them today ask God how you can do that and love them well And maybe for some of you, it's believe in Jesus for the first time. If you're at home watching or or if you're here and you're still not sure if you've taken that step of faith to believe in Jesus Christ, believe in him today and know grace and know truth. His name is Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6, we said this before. I'm just going to read it again. 
I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's an invitation. That's an invitation to the gospel. The gospel is so beautiful. Hard, harsh, the blood of Jesus on the cross, but beautiful in that it saves for all who will come to faith in him and his resurrection on the third day, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If today is the first time for you that you have felt the prompting of God, something is changing in your mind and in your heart and you know you're a sinner before a holy God, come to him today Ask Jesus to forgive your sins. He died on the cross to cover all your sins, a debt you couldn't pay. He did. Come to him today, and if that's what you're going to do today, then do that with us as we take communion. Because today, in a short while, we're gonna take communion. And when we do, make that your first declaration ever. And for those who are still trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus and who he is, don't take communion, but come talk to me afterwards or talk to one of our prayer partners that will be down here today. And they can talk to you more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you don't need to open your cups yet. And if you don't have cups, we're going to have a song here in a moment. You can go straight back to the double doors there. There'll be cups there. There's some cups over to the left, column to my left and column to my right. You can pick up a cup if you don't have one during the song. And we'll take communion after that. But for right now, for a moment, just in silence, Take a moment thanking God for his grace and truth and whatever comes to your mind. And if God's laying a sin on your heart, now's a great time to confess it. Let's pray in silence right now.